0: Well, good morning. morning. If you are with the children's ministry, there should be some teachers in the back. You are excused. And for the rest of us, we are continuing our sermon series in the Gospel of John. So if you will, turn with me to John chapter 15. We're going to be looking at half of this chapter. And the next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the second half. John chapter 15. Uh, I I don't know if you're anything like me, but sometimes when I'm trying to communicate something difficult, uh, maybe maybe something, that that feeling that's hard to get out of your mouth, uh, often when we're trying to talk about religious truths, theological truths, or even maybe when we fall in love, those kind of indescribable feelings when we don't have the words to say, often what we do is we reach for comparisons, analogies, metaphors. Let me read you one. Here's a metaphor, an analogy, a comparison of sorts. I looked up at the stars and the moon, so bright, so clear. I'm not alone. She speaks softly. She looks surreal. I closed my eyes. The reverse of a dream. That night it became as clear as the sky. That night I was touched by God and blessed by an angel. Not Shakespeare. If you're wondering, it's not Taylor Swift. That's 21-year-old Stephen, who had just (laughs) gone on the first date with a girl named Lisa. And it is nauseatingly bad. But there's a metaphor here, isn't there? Right? Right? It's a dead metaphor, it is a cliche metaphor, but here I am describing this girl I went on a first date with and comparing her to a, I'm gagging as I'm saying it, but you get the point, an angel, right? Young love, right? Now, it's not just me when we're kind of tongue-tied, when we don't exactly know the right words to use, we reach for metaphors, and we all do this, right? Uh, Emily Dickinson famously was talking about hope, and she reached for the metaphor of a bird. Or C.S. Lewis, he used metaphors all the time, and when he's talking about Christianity, he used the metaphor of the sun. We often use metaphors when we're trying to talk about a deep truth. We then reach for something, either adjacent or, or something maybe that's not even like it, but we use it in order to communicate something True. And we're not the only ones to do it. Far before Stephen did this, or C.S. Lewis, or Emily Dickinson, Jesus loved to use metaphors. In the Gospel of John, we've seen many of them, right? Jesus says, I am the resurrection of the life. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the light of the world. All of these are comparisons. They're metaphors in which Jesus is talking about deep, deep truths. And now we come to the final metaphor in Jesus' seven I am statements, he says that he is divine. Now, you might remember that in the last few chapters, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples, and it's like his farewell address. He's saying goodbye to them. And so in many ways, as he's saying goodbye and he's telling them, I'm leaving, and he's referencing his death, resurrection, and his ascension, he's assuring them that even when he leaves, They're going to be okay. He reminds them in chapter 14 that he's going to give them the Holy Spirit. And here in chapter 15, he tells them or reminds them that everything is going to be okay when he leaves because they're wondering, what happens when you leave? How will we continue on in the Christian life? And so the question isn't, which starts chapter fifty-five, uh, chapter 15, the question isn't, uh, is Jesus leaving? The question is, when Jesus leaves, will they remain? Will they abide? Will they continue to follow Jesus? And if so, what does that even look like? How do you abide? How do you remain? How do you follow Jesus? What does that even look like once Jesus is gone? How can we, to use sort of Christianese, How can we be fruitful? How can we mature? How can we exhibit the fruit of the Spirit? How does that even work? Today's text tells us. So, this morning, it's going to be divided up in two sections. First, we have this analogy that's described. That's verse 1 to 8. And then in verse 9 to verse 17, we have the analogy applied. So described, applied. That's good, huh? Right? That'll preach. And the big idea, which is behind me, is simply this. Fruitfulness is expressed in Christ, that's one to eight, and through Christ, that's nine to 17. So look with me in John chapter 15, starting in verse one. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. So prove to be my disciples. All right, we'll stop there. So, I'm a city boy. I didn't grow up on a farm. Agricultural stuff kind of freaks me out. But even I can understand the analogy, right? The metaphor is pretty clear. There's a lot of texts that you have to kind of work and massage out the the sort of analogy or metaphor, but this is pretty clear. Jesus is the vine. God is the vine dresser, or you can think gardener. And we, the people of God, are the branches. Well, sort of. We'll we'll get there in a second. And so you might remember, chapter 14 ends with Jesus saying, okay, let's go. And so the meal is done, Jesus has washed their feet. He's having this Passover meal. And now they've left and they're going towards the Mount of Olives. And probably as they go, they're passing the temple. And if you pass in the temple in Jesus' day, you would have seen the temple gates. And on the temple gates, ornate with gold, was this beautiful array of ornate decorations on the temple gate of a vine. And the reason that the temple had all this vine imagery is, symbolically speaking, Israel was described as a vine. I mean, Phil read uh, Isaiah 5, which talks about Israel as a vine. And so in places like Psalm 80 and Hosea 10, Israel is described symbolically like a vine, and God is a vine dresser. Or God is, vine dresser is like a weird phrase, but God is like a gardener who prunes and takes care of the garden. So all the way back, starting in Genesis, you know, two and three, we, we have humanity sort of linked, uh, symbolically to this garden or vineyard imagery. And so Israel is described as a vine. And it's, that might seem odd, but, but we do this too, right? If you saw like stars and stripes, you'd go, Oh, that's symbolic of America. So the vine came to symbolize the people of God in the Old Testament. And so Jesus is reaching back to this imagery. And saying that he is the vine. But, but did you notice that there's an adjective modifying the vine? He's not just any old vine. He's not just a vine among many vines. He is the true vine. So he's talking about this beautiful imagery. About God's intimate relationship with his people. Through this language of a vineyard or a vine. But it takes a sour note. Or a tragic turn because Jesus is actually, in one sense, alluding to Isaiah 5 or Ezekiel 15, which are both describing the same reality. So the analogy in Isaiah 5 and Ezekiel 15, but we're going to look just at Ezekiel 15 because we didn't read it, but basically God's people are described as a, as a vineyard, but there's all these weeds in the vineyard which represent sin and idolatry. If you go to Ezekiel 15, do you want to turn there for a second, in, uh, in Ezekiel 15, God's people are sinning, they have, uh, they're idolatrous. In chapter 14, it's talking about the leaders, the elders that are not even teaching God's word. They're, they're just cruel and unloving and injustice is reigning in Israel. And so we read in Ezekiel 15 that God is going to cut down the vine, which represents Israel. Let me read Ezekiel 15, verse 6. Therefore, thus says the Lord of God, like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the, to the fire for fuel, so I have given the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will set my face against them. Though they escape from the fire, the fire shall yet consume them. And you will know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. And I will make the land desolate because they have acted faithlessly, declares the Lord God. So here in the Old Testament, Israel is described as the vine, God as the vine dresser, but because of their idolatry and their sin, because of their lack of faithfulness and fruitfulness, they are being or going to be cut down. And this particularly is talking about the exile, that God's going to send them in to the exile. They didn't remain faithful to God. And therefore, in the language of Ezekiel 15, they're going to be not just pruned, but cut off. And so Jesus reaches back in this analogy and uses this imagery to talk about the relationship between God's people and himself. Only this time, Israel is no longer the vine. Jesus is now the vine. The people of God are the branches. That's the sort of shocker in all of this. Jesus says, I am the true vine. And what he's saying there is, As Israel was the vine of God, but failed to live up to all that she was meant to be, Jesus is the true vine in the sense that he has lived up to all that Israel was meant to do. Jesus lived up to all that Israel was meant to be. Jesus obeyed God faithfully. All the blessings that were to flow into Israel and then out to the nations, Jesus says, now flow into him and then out and through him. So in a sense, what Jesus is saying is, if you want a relationship with God, if you want to be the people of God, you can't have it directly with God, it's only in relationship to Jesus. The people of God are the people of God to the extent that they are connected to the vine, which is Jesus Christ. That's what the analogy is saying, that Those who are cut off are those who are not connected to Jesus, and those who are being pruned are those that are, in fact, connected to Jesus. Jesus is, for lack of a better phrase, the true Israel, the fulfillment of Israel. All the hopes, dreams, and blessings that God said he would pour out on Israel, Israel, by her sin, has forfeited, and now they flow into Jesus and out to his people. So what this analogy is saying is that Jesus is the true people of God. And insofar as you want a relationship with God, you come to God through Jesus Christ. That's what he says down in verse 5. Look, look, look there in verse 5 of chapter 15. Once again, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So who are you? Your identity, your fundamental identity isn't... And you could just name all those sorts of things. I am this, I am that. Those are all true sentences, but your fundamental identity isn't have anything to do with you or your gender or what you do for a living. Your most fundamental identity isn't won by you or accomplished by you. It is in your connection with Jesus's identity himself. Jesus is true Israel. Jesus is the faithful one of Israel, Jesus is God's son and to the extent that you believe in him, put your trust and faith in him and are united to him is the extent to which you now get his identity. So the blessings that flow into, his, into Jesus by God, his faithfulness, his perfection, all of that in faith then flow to you when you are connected to the vine there's lots of verses that talk about this, but I think the clearest one is Paul, where later on in the book of Ephesians, he talked about those who are elected or chosen in Christ. Just, just semantically, it's really, really simple. That your identity as a chosen one is only to the extent that you are in Christ. That is what makes your identity secure. Or it makes your identity as a Christian isn't what you do or do not do. It's not your behaviors. It's not I came to church on Sunday. Fundamentally, your identity is as a Christian, is in your union with Jesus Christ. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. And so God's people are the branches now, tethered to Jesus. And then we learn in verse 2 and verse 6 that though there are lots of branches connected, not all of them are true branches, right? Some might talk a little bit like a branch. Some might look a little bit like a branch. Some might seem like they're a branch, but upon closer inspection, they are not a branch. So there are some branches that seem like a branch that are going to be cut off in the end. That's the Ezekiel 15, Isaiah 5 sense. And then there's some that are true branches that God then prunes. So what this is saying is that fruitfulness is not optional. It's not something we can choose to do. Fruitfulness is part and parcel of the Christian life. It is It is, by nature, what it looks like to be tethered to Jesus. Jesus is life. And so, if you don't have life bursting out of you, then you're not connected to the vine. You're not connected to Jesus. Faithfulness is not optional. Now, I say that, and some of you might be going, well, what does that practically look like? We have to be careful here because, in one sense, analogies shouldn't be pushed too far because it's analogy. All analogies or metaphors break down, right? Um my wife is like an angel, but the moment you start taking to it too literally, you go into weird heretical things, right? That would be odd and weird, okay? It's just a metaphor. And so we, we got to be careful with this analogy, but let me just say that in order to kind of figure out what, what this looks like, let me give you another analogy. So let me use an analogy to describe this analogy. Hope this is helpful. So I'm coaching... My uh, son's basketball, he, he's in first grade, I'm coaching his basketball team, and so I got a list of all these boys in first and second grade, and I got to pick who's gonna be on my team. So I went, didn't know most of these people, and I chose. I elected 10 boys to be on my team, okay? Now, imagine if one of those boys never showed up to practice. Imagine if one of those boys never showed up to any other game. Imagine if all the communication Uh, all the emails I sent, they never responded at all. They just never showed up. And then this little boy showed up uh, when we go to Godfather's Pizza to celebrate, you know, know, I'm a millennial, you know, everyone gets a trophy, right? So, So we go, we have pizza, and we celebrate everyone for their participation in this great season. And imagine if this little boy shows up and goes, I'm on the team. I'd say, no, you're not. In what meaningful way were you a part of this team? You never showed up to a practice. You never responded to me. I never got to coach you. Uh, You you never showed up at any games. You didn't participate at all. This child's life was an expression that they weren't in a true sense a part of the team. That's what's going on here. That's my analogy of the analogy. Just because you say you're a part of the team doesn't mean you're a part of the team. It needs to be expressed in the fruit, and that fruit looks like many things. But that's the analogy. So, let me just say, how can you be fruitful, just by way of application? Like, what what does it look like? Well, let me just say that if you're concerned or you want to be more fruitful in this season, uh, in the fruit of the Spirit, imaging Christ, exhibiting the character of Christ, you don't gain that by Staring at more fruitfulness. That's not how you gain more fruit, by just thinking about how can I be more fruitful. Conjuring up like, okay, I gotta be more patient. Okay, how do I be more patient with my kids? I just gotta stare at my parenting and my patience. That's not how this works. I've tried it, right? If you wanna be more fruitful in this season, this happens as you just keep looking and focusing on Jesus and not the fruit itself as you focus on Jesus, as you sing about Jesus, as you read about Jesus, as you talk to others about Jesus, as you share Christ's love with your neighbors, to the extent that you do that, you will be strangely and warmly encouraged to live out more like Jesus. That's how this works. So how can you be more fruitful? I think the analogy is clear. It's only in Jesus. Your union with Jesus, that objective, reality of being in Christ through faith will because Christ's life will manifest in fruit. It is assured. If you're a Christian, you will be fruitful objectively. But if you want to experience the subjective reality of that, just keep looking at Jesus. Keep singing about Jesus. Keep talking to others about Jesus. Hang out with people who love to talk about Jesus. Keep reading great books about Jesus. And to the extent that you do that, you will be fruitful. So that's the analogy. Now, starting verse 9, this analogy or this metaphor isn't just described, it's applied. Verse 9. Let me, let me read. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. So verse one is talking about this life in Christ and then starting in verse nine, we get this idea of what does it look like to have Christ live through us? And there's this constant theme to going, that that kind of plays itself out in various ways in verse 9 to verse 17. So maybe look at it this way. Verse 1 to 8, it has to do with branches' relationship to the vine. And then we're going to see next week, it's talking about branches and their relationship to the world. But now it's, what does it look like to have relationship with other branches? What does it look like to have relationships with one another, fellow Christians? What is that predominant, Word that describes the expression of fruitfulness in the church. And so, uh, you know, starting in verse 9, we have this language that comes up over and over and over again, but we see it clearly in verse 12. This is where it's spelled out. Jesus talks about this commandment. He's referenced this back a few chapters. But then in verse 12, he says, this is my commandment. So what's this commandment? That you love one another as I have loved you. So there are four aspects of what Jesus wants to describe this love that we should be sharing with one another here at this church. Like, what does this love look like that Christ's love for us is manifested through us? Like, what does it look like? And I want to point out four manifestations of love and what this looks like and how it applies to our lives. So first, the love that is commanded to us as we're unified to Christ, that Christ will work through us, is a love that is an imitated sort of love. It's a plagiarized love. Look, look there in verse 9, right? Verse 9 talks about this love that Jesus has with the Father. And so he's basically saying, as Jesus has loved the Father, and the Father has loved Jesus, as Jesus has obeyed the Father, as Jesus has listened to the Father and kept the Father's word or commandments. So we now, an imitation of that Trinitarian relationship, we now should follow and obey Jesus. That's what love looks like. If you want to know what love looks like, the manifestation of what love should look like in the church, look at the Trinitarian love between Father, Son, and Spirit. That's the paradigm. That's what love is supposed to look like. And notice verse 11. It's not just a duty. I think sometimes we talk about love like, oh, I just have to love this person. Or my guess is that we all have people in our lives that are, for lack of a better phrase, those people that are hard to love. And so, love is, in one sense, a command. It is, in one sense, a duty. But that's not how Jesus talks about it down in verse 11. He talks about it in reference to joy. That as you love one another, joy is going to be manifested. Which doesn't mean that loving someone is easy. I mean, just take Jesus as the paradigm. Jesus is wrestling with the love that he's about to display to the world in his death. We we see him wrestling with it in the garden, right? Jesus loved perfectly, but it was difficult. It wasn't easy, but it wasn't merely out of duty either. When you get to the book of Hebrews, he talks about uh, he endured the cross, but how did he endure the cross? Hebrews tells us that it was for the joy that was set before Jesus. Jesus loved and endured the cross and endured all of that through and by joy. Jesus' joy increases as he displays his love to us. One author hundreds of years ago wrote, wrote this, that, that Jesus' own joy increases as he enlargingly shows his grace to his people on earth. In other words, Christ does not tire of loving his people. He is not tired of pardoning your sin. He is not tired of you coming to him saying, I screwed up again. He never gets tired. He loves to display his love to you in forgiving you and redeeming you and deepening you and intimacy with you. Jesus delights in displaying his love for you. And in the same way, when it comes to how we ought to love one another, we ought to love one another in that same way. It should be a delight to love one another. I think often we just think of it as a duty, but if you just love someone out of duty, there comes a day when you'll just quit. It'll just get too hard. But if there's delight in it, joy in your love expressed in the church, you'll be motivated to keep on loving. And I might just add, it has no end because of the source of love bubbling up in us. Right? We're connected to the vine, Jesus. So if you're like, well, I don't know if I have enough love. Well, you do, because Christ perfectly loves and bursts that love out through us. So that's the first mark. This love is described as a sort of like imitated love that we we love in imitation of God and uh, the the sort of Trinitarian love that we see in verses uh, 12 or verses 11 and 12. But then look look down at verse 13. We also realize that the the, the love that's supposed to mark us as a church is sacrificial love. Verse 13. Greater love has no one than this that someone laid down his life for his friend. So Christ displayed his love for us in dying for sinners. This is what we talk about when we talk about the gospel, that Jesus didn't die for us because, well, he needed us on the team, right? We weren't like the first pick on God's like, you know, heavenly dodgeball team. That's not the gospel that we believe. The gospel isn't that oh, yeah, we worked our way up and then God saw all of the great deeds that we did, all of our great morality, our, our great, you know, heavenly spirituality and said, yep, now, now I'm going to display my love and die for you. Christ died while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us while we were sinners and enemies of God. So Christ took us, enemies of God, who had turned our back to God and made us friends with God. That is the mark of love, love is marked uh, with the uh, you could say, the, the greatest mark of love really is sacrifice. And we see it manifested in Christ dying for those who were his enemies. So the love that we are to, be, to, to manifest in this church should always be tangible and sacrificial. Are you looking for ways in which you can love one another in a sacrificial, tangible way? uh i'm slightly ashamed to to share this story but but um i've been on the receiving end of that uh the last few weeks and so my uh my car's transmission broke i can spell car but that's about all i know about cars and so there's something wrong with transmission it won't pop out of second gear most of the time and a couple times i tried to go on the freeway and let's just say if you can't get out of second gear and you're entering the freeway not a fun experience okay and so it's really expensive to fix cars, I've just learned. And so uh, I was sharing this with my kind of men's Bible study, and I didn't even know, but they basically took up an offering and just handed me a bunch of money that covered the cost of fixing my transmission. My guess is all of those guys and those families could have used that money to do something with. Like, they, they have bills, and yet they sacrificially gave out of love for me. And if you've ever been to that men's Bible study, you know, it is filled with men who really do do not just like each other, but really do love each other and encourage each other. And the masculine banter that happens in the Bible study is proof of it, isn't it? <laughs> love is sacrificial. It always is sacrificial. It's that parent staying up late into the night as their kid is sick. So are you looking for ways in which you can tangibly and sacrificially love one another? And often it's not monetary. It's, that's sometimes the easy thing. But often it's just relationally, it's giving your time, your energy, your gifts to other people, sitting in the sadness of, their, uh, of the, the season of life they're going through. It's walking with them. It's using your gifts to encourage them. Love is, as we manifest in the church, it's a sacrificial type of love. Well, it's not just that. Third, we see that love also reorients our relationship to one another. Look there at verse 14. No longer do I call you servants, I call you friends. Now what's going on here? Well, some of you know the, the, the sitcom The Office, and I think you could summarize the entire comedic tension of that sitcom, boil it down to this. The manager and boss, Michael Scott, wants to be friends with his employees, but he never knows if they just obey him because they're his employees or, he, or they obey him because they love him. That's the tension. That's what he's, he's just desperately wanting them to love him, but he never quite knows if they love him because that's the nature of a boss. So, so, so if, if I was a boss and I told Ben, go get me a sandwich, I would never know if he went and got me a sandwich because it was his job, but he didn't want to get fired, or if he got me a sandwich because he loved me. Like, I could guess, but I'd never really know. And so that's the point that Jesus is making. Jesus is reorienting relationships with him, and no longer does he call them servants. They're now friends. And he says that a friend is someone who does not hold anything back from someone. That's why Jesus says, I, I didn't hold anything back from you. Everything that the Father told me, I'm now telling you. I'm not holding anything back from you. You are my friends. And therefore, in light of that, we, as the church, are meant to be friends with one another. Now, we have to be careful here because there's a sense in which I personally, just like you, can't be friends with everyone. Right? We have concentric set circles, right? There are people who we're acquaintance with, that we're friendly with, Then there are people who are, you know, we have, you know, 20 people that we're we're friends with and they know what's going on in our life. And then usually we have a few more that are like really close friends that really know what's going on in our lives. But to the extent that we have those really close friends are the extent to which we don't hold much back. Uh, About a year ago, the elders began to read a book all about friendship. And I always pick the elder book, and I often don't tell the elders why we're reading a particular book. But in some sense, I read it, so I don't think this is going to shock the elders. But I read it because, and I know this is a stereotypical truth, but I think men, in particular, have a hard time with friends. Like, men are friendly with a lot of people, but when it comes to friends and really just opening up your heart and life to other men, that's hard. And so we read a book by Vaughn Roberts all about friendship and what friendship looks like and how we as elders uh, lead in having friendships so that we can encourage other men and women to deepen their friendships as the church. And so, uh, though I'm not going to get into it, it's a great book, but he talks about friendship with a bunch of C's because, you know, every pastor likes alliteration. He says, true friendships are crucial which we read here, they're close, they're constant, they're candid, they're careful, and they are Christ-centered, or to use the language of John 15, they are tethered to the vine. We need friendships. We need men, men need other men to walk with them in every season of life. Women need women to walk with them in particular. Like we need, I need someone more than just my wife and she is my best friend, but I need someone more than that who asks the hard question. I have this group of guys that we get together once a year, and it's such a close group of friends that if I said, oh yeah, my marriage is fine, they would call my bluff possibly and say, great, I've got Lisa's number and I'll call her right now and, and, and call you on it. Like We need those sort of friends who, who are so dedicated to us and our growth and want to walk with us and see us grow and mature that they will engage in candid conversation because they want to see us grow in Christ. So what does love look like? It's an imitated type of love. Second, um, it's, it's sacrificial. It's, it's reorients our relationship now that we are friends with God. That connection with Christ as a friend, not a servant. Now we can we can just bubble out with friendship towards others. But then there's one more. It's kind of an odd one. But love is manifested in the people of God through prayer. I don't know if you notice this, but twice prayer is mentioned. You see it at the end, verse 16, and you see it in verse 7. This, This language of asking the Father, and it will be granted to you. I don't know if you think of this, but prayerlessness, not praying, is lovelessness. So if you don't pray... Prayer is, in one sense, an act of cruelty. Or we could put it this way. If you don't pray, pray. prayer is a, is a fruit that you are forgetting how close you are to the vine. Let me give you an example. So, so often we don't pray, I think, because we're like, prayer doesn't work. I prayed that one prayer. I, I, I prayed for this, and I didn't get that. And therefore, pray, prayer doesn't work. Or we think, oh, um, you know, God's really, really busy. You know, He's like, He's invested all these people's lives. He's like, you know, running the universe. Like, God's really busy. I'm not going to just pray because, well, He's bored with me. Or we think maybe God's not good, or that God is not going to give us the things that we pray for because God always just wants us to suffer. So, so we have all these sort of like default views, which is all really bad theology. And so prayerlessness really is an attack on the doctrine of God. But really, when you think about it, we want people to ask us for things. So, so it would be weird if, uh, someone, uh, a senior in, in high school who is not my kid walked up to me and said, will you pay for my college? That'd be weird, right? I'd say, no, like you, you don't, you can't ask me that. But my daughter, she can ask me for that. Why? Because of our relationship. Right, And I want her to ask me. Now, I'm probably going to say no, but that doesn't matter. Right? The point is, the closeness of our relationship is such that that I want my children to ask me. That's what this relationship is about. And that's what what Jesus is saying here. The closeness of the relationship is such that you are so tethered to the vine that you can ask Jesus for anything. You can ask the Father for anything. Which doesn't mean that you're going to get everything. Because often we pray more out of our sinfulness than we do out of our maturity. But it doesn't mean that you can't go to your father and ask and ask and ask persistently again and again and again and to pray for outrageous things. I mean, twice it says, and we we, we saw this earlier, to pray for anything. And you don't need to be a Greek scholar to know anything means anything. So love manifested in the church should be a church praying for Outrageous prayers for prayers that only God can answer. that prayers that in one sense do not make sense. I have prayers that I don't even tell the elders about because I think they would think I'm a lunatic <laughs> because they're so outrageous. But I just keep praying for them and praying for them and just asking God. Our prayer lives are a display of our union with they, they are a subjective uh, expression of our objective union with christ and so we're called to pray for one another it's why we have a prayer service it's why we pray all throughout the service because we are a church we pray not just out of you know well because 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 god if, if we don't pray then you know nothing's going to happen it's not like a pragmatic. It's a reminder of our intimacy with Jesus, that we are connected to him. And so we pray and we pray and we pray as a display of our love. It's why we keep praying for our community. We we pray that more churches would be planted. We pray for Chris. We pray for missions. We pray that God's name would be proclaimed throughout the nations. Why? Because we love the world and we want them to see the beauty and majesty of Jesus Christ. A loving church is a praying church. So, let me just summarize, and I'm going to pray. We all want to be fruitful, I think. If you're a Christian, you want to be fruitful. Well, it comes only insofar as you are connected to divine. Fruitfulness comes in Christ. But then how is it manifested through us? Well, Christ manifests through us as we love. As we love one another as we do it sacrificially, tangibly, as we have awkward conversations, as we, as we encourage others or point out sin in each other's lives. Love displayed in the church tells the world an aspect of who God is. So, let me just, let me just close by saying this. Are you abiding in Christ, remaining in Christ following in christ and if you're like i don't know well then turn to christ look to christ run to christ and then his presence his love his power will flow through you and outward to the world let's pray god we are just grateful for your son jesus christ and all that he's doing in our church and in our lives Lord, we, we, we are thankful for even those moments of humility where we're just reminded that this is not about us. So we pray that we would give you glory. We, we pray that we would, we would be a church that loves one another, walks with one another. And Lord, we pray that wherever anyone is at, whether in a good time or a bad time, in the mountain or in the valley, or in the ordinary times, we pray, Lord, that we would remind ourselves time and time again of the person, power, and presence of Jesus Christ for our good and the good of the world. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.